Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, and dryness, <laughs> given this weekend. Uh, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here. We are now welcome. Welcome to our program. It's, uh, it's, wow, what a weekend. Spent a lot of the weekend just watching disaster porn on TV. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing, I, I think the biggest takeaway uh, for me, anyway, from this weekend was uh, what uh, Egberto Willis wrote in his headline over at Daily Kos: political malpractice kills, and he says the perpetrator should be dealt with accordingly. Um, he says, you know, we, we talk a lot about holding politicians accountable. And I'm, I'm talking specifically right now about people who are dead in Houston and in Florida, in Texas and in Florida, as a result of of climate change fueled storms that the governors of those states refuse to even acknowledge is happening. Um, he goes on to write, politicians were not only made aware of the science, uh, scientific evidence, they were handed a solution. This, has, this is about Houston, okay? Governor of uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey. In 1996, the governor of Texas was George Bush. An oil man who, gee, what a coincidence, didn't believe in global warming. And uh, not only was, you know, obviously he knew about global warming, but, you know, lied about it. In a report dated May 1996, engineers for the Harris County Flood Control District concluded that the area's reservoir system was severely insufficient and imperiled thousands of properties, homes and businesses. 1996, this is 21 years ago. The, uh, the report's authors proposed to Governor Bush a $400 million fix constructing a massive underground conduit that would carry water out of the reservoirs and into the Houston ship channel more quickly. Had their recommendations been heeded, the catastrophic flooding that struck Houston a week ago would have been greatly diminished, sparing thousands of homes from floodwaters. So there are, there are people who have lost their homes and possibly people who are dead right now 
because George Bush said, there's no such thing as climate change. We don't have to worry about this, this report. And we're not going to spend $400 million to, to Im improve flood control in Houston. After all, in order to do that, we would have to tax you know, wealthy people like my dad who maintains his residence here. Right. For tax purposes. He goes on to point out, Zigberto Willies over at uh, Daily Kos, a drunk driver who gets into a fatal collision doesn't set out to kill anyone. If a gun owner drops his loaded restaurant in a crowded res a loaded weapon in a crowded restaurant and accidentally goes off and kills someone, even if he has no intention of killing someone, he's going to be charged with involuntary manslaughter. The engineer who builds a structurally defective bridge that falls and kills innocent victims never intended such an outcome. Doctor who makes a mistake that causes someone to die didn't do it on purpose. Yet every single one of those people can be prosecuted for negligence or even manslaughter. Why not our politicians? Especially when they do so knowingly. I mean, if you can demonstrate that they actually knew that their lack of action would lead to people dying, shouldn't we hold them accountable? Tim McCarthy and Lauren Gambino in New York and Washington, writing for The Guardian. The headline, the Republicans who urged Trump to pull out a Paris deal are big oil darlings. You know, Donald Trump was thinking about staying in the Paris Accords. His daughter was pushing him to do it. There were, a, you know, a bunch of people around him who were saying, hey, uh, you know, you really, really don't want to pull out of this thing. And by the way, you know, it takes four years and it's not binding and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons not to pull out of it. It doesn't have any teeth. It's just, you know, it's just a statement of principle. But, and Trump was said to be on the fence about the deal. Members of his inner circle, including his daughter, reportedly in favor of staying in. This is in the article in The Guardian. And then the oil, coal, and gas industry got into the act. Visible donations to Republican. Now, visible is the important word because we're going to get to the invisible donations in a minute. Visible donations to Republicans from those industries, oil, gas, and coal, exceeded donations to Republicans in the 2016 election cycle by a ratio of 15 to 1. That doesn't include the so-called dark money that Coke Industries and others use. At least $90 million in untraceable money has been funneled to Republican candidates from oil, gas, and coal interests in the last three election cycles. But this, this is the real shocking number. $10,649,284 was given to 22 senators over the past three election cycles. And when oil, gas, and coal needed those 22 senators, they said, how high? And they said, letter to Trump. And they wrote the letter. When are Republicans going to stop taking money from the fossil fuel industry so they can stop lying about climate change? Any ideas? Any suggestions? I, you know, it's just like, it seems like, they, you know, it's, they, they are so addicted to fossil fuel money. Jeff Lussain over at the World Socialist website is writing, uh, the, the headline is sort of self-explanatory, although there is some detail. And by the way, the World Socialist website runs some really great news stories, but according to their site, Google is blocking them from their news feeds. I'm, I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe they think it's fake news. Or it's the word socialist. Oh my God, socialist, we can't have that. So anyhow, Jeff Lussain writes, why haven't passenger trains, which could carry a thousand people at a time, been sent to Florida to help? Now, this was written a couple of days ago. 
Prior to Hurricane Gustav in 2008, there was a small successful example of this. 2,000 people were taken from New Orleans to Memphis, Tennessee on special trains. A worker who participated in the rail operation said that at least 50% of the passengers were elderly, many in wheelchairs on walkers or canes, and generally unable to move very well without some assistance. And yet with Irma, nothing similar. Now, why is that? Well, part of it, uh, Jeff Lussain writes over at the WS, the World Socialist website, is uh, WSWS.org, I think it is. Uh, sev uh, another severe constraint to the rail evacuation is the private control of the major routes, rail routes in Florida. CSX uh, Railroad owns routes between Miami, Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, and points north. All these routes have been cut back over several decades with less capacity and fewer maintenance employees. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why Amtrak can't run high-speed trains from D.C. to New York, because the rail is privately owned and they won't maintain it and they won't upgrade it. CXX was recently taken over by a hedge fund. Isn't that wonderful? Which is instituting even deeper cuts, including over 500 layoffs in its Jacksonville, Florida headquarters. Brilliant. He writes, the response uh, to Hurricane Irma and to Hurricane Harvey before it expresses the reality of American capitalism. Decades of social plunder, rising inequality and decaying infrastructure combined with the disinterest and contempt of the ruling class for basic issues of public safety have paved the way for another disaster. It is also 9-11 today. And I want to get into a conversation about what happened on 9-11 16 years ago and how we might or should have dealt with it then and how we might or should deal with something like that now. But I'm going to continue my climate change rant and my uh, fossil fuel Republicans are shills, they're killing people rant for this hour. We'll get into 9-11 next hour. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls, my thoughts, and more of the news of the day. And boy, is there a pile of it as this hurricane now heads into Georgia. Okay, so here's another, you know, just I'm going to get back into this, you know, should we prosecute politicians um, for malpractice or for lying to us? I realize there's no, no, to the best of my knowledge, there's no provision in law for this. And it's unlikely that our lawmakers are going to pass it. But maybe, maybe there's a way. But for example, as I play this clip for you of this Republican member of Congress who was on uh, Morning Joe this morning, he's essentially, his name is uh, Mike McCall. He's a Republican from Texas. And he's essentially talking about how, um, you know, when, when thousands of people are having a crisis, it actually is an important role of government to solve that problem for them, to help them through that crisis. Now, thousands of people... Uh, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people are are in distress as a result of Harvey and Irma, and probably tens of thousands at the, at the least, excuse me, are homeless. And and of course, scores are dead. So the question I would ask you as you listen to this Republican talk is, if a couple thousand people 
or even a couple hundred thousand people being in a crisis because of the weather requires government intervention, then why is it that the hundreds of thousands of Americans who right now are fighting cancer and the millions of Americans who right now are fighting heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, other life-threatening conditions that will take their lives just as certainly as a hurricane will, why are they not entitled to protection from, you know, by our government from that cancer, from that crisis? You know, what's the difference between a crisis that just randomly hits a bunch of people and a crisis that just randomly hits a bunch of people? Cancer. Weather, cancer, right? Nobody, nobody went out for either one of them and said, gee, I'd like to have a hurricane. Gee, I'd like to have cancer. It doesn't happen. Knock on wood. Nobody wants to have cancer. So anyhow, here's, here's Mike McCall. Uh, we got no audio, Troy, or Nate. We're, we're going we're gonna to try it again, but you got to un unmute the audio there and, and uh, off we go. So uh, this, the, the, the whole conversation this morning on, on Morning Joe is about, you know, what, what's the appropriate role of government? What's the appropriate response? And here's Mike McCall talking about that. We have to provide assistance to these people who are hurting and to help them rebuild. And I felt that that vote was a vote of conscience to help people uh, in my state and also now in Florida. Uh, I think that's what Americans do. And I think it's unconscionable to vote against something what did like they that. What did, I, I'm yeah. See, he was talking about the vote for $7.8 billion last week. For, to, to, in fact, later on in the interview, he said that was just a down payment to help the, the victims of Hurricane Harvey. Now, of course, he's a Republican congressman from Texas, so he's trying to help out his own. But why does that logic not apply to health care? Why does it not? I mean, you know, cancer will kill you just as just as certainly as as Irma might or as Harvey might have. In fact, cancer is even a far more deadly thing. OK, back to politicians and malpractice. The Washington Post, September 8th, Brady Dennis and Daryl Fears. The headline, Florida governor has ignored climate change risks, critics say. And Brady and Daryl write, for all of Scott's vigor, this is, uh, you know, Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, for all of Scott's vigor in readying Florida for Irma's wrath, his administration has done little over the years to prepare for what scientists say are the inevitable effects of climate change. Florida is one of the states at greatest risk. Scott has scarcely acknowledged the problem. And his Republican-led legislature has shown little interest in funding projects to help the state adopt, adapt and become more resilient. Again, I would say this is because they're getting money from the Koch network. They're getting money from fossil fuel billionaires. They're getting money from ExxonMobil. They're getting money from Massey Energy. They're getting money from the coal companies, the, the, the gas company, BP, uh, you name it. The science, Kathy Bauman McLeod, who is a conservation expert with Florida Energy and Climate Commission, said the science has been brought on a silver platter to Governor Scott, and he's chosen not to do anything about it. There is no state leadership on climate change in Florida, period. Scott was asked about it, and he simply said, I'm not a scientist. Harold Wanless, chairman of the University of Miami's Geological Science Department, an expert on sea level rise, said, we should be doing very serious planning. It doesn't help when you have a governor and a president who are dismissing climate change. Scott's predecessor, Republican Governor Charlie Crist, described climate change as an existential threat to the state. 
When Charlie Crist was sworn in, who's, by the way, been a guest on this program several times, he's, and he's now a Republican congressman from Florida, he said, quote, I am persuaded that global climate change is one of the most important issues we will face this century. Now, not only is, did Rick Scott ignore things, but over at The Intercept, Ewine Higgins has a story Scott took uh, six years ago, took an action. He actually did something. Here's what he did. He cut funding for the state's water management districts in 2011, leading to staff reductions and less funding for ecosystem restoration projects. Now, what do ecosystem restoration products do? projects do? They absorb water! Around the same time, Scott signed the state legislature's repeal of the state's 1985 growth management law, leading to a spike in development. What does that do? Covers up more ground that can absorb moisture, particularly in Florida, where the ground's very porous. Covers it with concrete. So guess what? A little flood becomes a big flood. The changes to state priorities around development over Florida's wetlands came during a period of few major hurricanes, they note in the article. It's particularly interesting. And then they say, until 2011, Florida's water management districts were run by regulators and scientists. But Scott's order to cut funding by $700 replaced them with developer-friendly lawyers and business people. Brilliant. Brilliant. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. As Joan McCarter says over at, uh, thing, at Daily Coast, Republicans' refusal to govern is destroying everything. Fantasy football fans, the wait is nearly over. Football is back, which means FanDuel is back. FanDuel is fantasy football for everyday fans. They have new contests starting every week, so there's no busted seasons. FanDuel has something for everyone. Lots of contests to choose from, starting at just $1. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score in real time. Hey, would you like to have Colin Kaepernick on your team? He's on mine. There's a lot of ways to put together and personalize your team, and boy, the games just get better and better. Every, over 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Sign up today. Go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with over $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. That's FanDuel, F-A-N-D-U-E-L dot com, promo code TOM, void where prohibited. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's pick up some phone calls. Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind? No, Jeff. Let's try uh, Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. I want to talk about the 16-year anniversary of 9-11 and the aftermath effects. Jared, I'm going to ask you to call back at the beginning of the next hour. This hour, I'm staying on the topic of um, politicians and climate change and hurricanes and things. Next hour, we're going to talk about 9-11. Dion in Round Lake, Illinois. Hey, Dion, what's up? Yes, uh, do you think that Hurricane Harvey and Irma and possibly Jose, um, they're causing economic damage, and do you think it's going to be enough to dip us into another recession? It's a damn good question, Dion, and there's a whole um, body of literature about this and a huge debate in economic circles about how much of a, uh, 
we all know that a small disaster is actually stimulative. You know, it's, it's the old thing from, uh, you know, that, you know, when a forest fire happens, GDP goes up. When an oil spill happens, GDP goes up because you have to you have to invest money and resources in remediating the forest or in cleaning up the oil spill. That takes money. That means money gets spent. Spending money stimulates the economy. It's a pretty straightforward equation. And so small natural disasters can be strong regional stimulus machines, essentially, because people have to rebuild their homes. But as we saw after Hurricane Katrina back in 2005, um, the, the demand for both labor and for materials was so great that it, it led to uh, a lot of exploitative labor practices and a huge uh, encouraging shall we say, of uh, illegal immigration to, to work in New Orleans. And, and we, were, we were so completely out of building materials made in the United States, which is going to be my, the topic of my third hour rant today, that uh, we, we were unable to even rebuild with that, with, without using poisonous sheetrock. Remember all that, that sheetrock that was filled with, with, uh, with toxic waste? Apparently the Chinese method of getting rid of their toxic waste is to dilute it and add it to products made to be sold in the United States. And, and, or at least in that case, and whether it's Chinese or whether it's just that company, but you know, that's the deal. So the question is, is the scope of the destruction so large that it will have a macro economy impact rather than a micro, rather than a local economy impact? And if so, what will that impact be? And, uh, you know, cause it's, there's going to be a, uh, you know, Houston, for example, is, is I think, I read last week it was the equivalent of the 36th largest economy in the world. If the if the if the area that was hit by the hurricane was was a separate nation, it would be the 36th largest country in the world economically, and it's essentially shut down right now. Now a lot of the functions from that area are being handled in other parts of the country. Um, so uh, you know, particularly with the internet and whatnot, I suppose that's the good news. But there is one school of thought that suggests that even though we're due for a recession right now, we've never had uh, a, a post-World War II expansion in the stock market go more than eight years, never happened before, it's eight years right now, um, that it could be that the demand for products and services that will be created in the rebuilding in Florida, South Georgia, and Texas will actually stimulate the economy and buy us a few more years of good economic growth. Or there are folks who are suggesting that, no, when you have major economic dislocations, and the classic example of this is the Arab oil boycott of the, of the late 60s and early 70s. There were two major Arab oil boycotts of the United States when we supported Israel against you know, the, the Arab countries. And um, those oil boycotts, I mean, you know, Nixon had to in, uh, put in price controls into place. They, they jacked the price of oil tremendously. Um, the, uh, it, I mean, it was just, it, 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 that led to massive inflation at the end of the, you know, throughout the Jerry Ford administration and through, through the first couple of years of Jimmy Carter's administration, uh, to the point that Jerry Ford was giving away buttons that said, win, W-I-N, whip inflation now. And, uh, you know, they were begging stores and whatnot to keep prices down and employers not to raise pay and, you know, which was all silly because the process was being driven by the Fed and and by the marketplace. There was, you know, a, a an essential commodity oil was not available and that just rippled through everything else. So I don't know the answer to the question, Dion, but it's a damn good question. And, and I've been 
carefully watching, you know, places like Financial Times, The Economist, um, the, uh, you know, some of the economic blogs, Naked Capitalism is my favorite, um, to see, you know, what the best thinking is on this. And I don't see any consensus having emerged yet. So, Dion, thanks for the call. Good question. Lendry in Petaluma, California. Hey, Lendry, what's up? Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I love your books. Uh, they've changed how I parent and I teach. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm calling in regards to SB 649, the bill that will put many cell towers, antennas, but they basically function as cell towers, on potentially every four to six lampposts throughout California and on public buildings like schools and libraries, but not fire stations. Firemen got an exemption for health and safety reasons. Are you aware of this? I was I, I was aware of everything except that the firemen got a health and safety exemption. That should be a huge red flag. It should, right? You'd think. Um, it's really scary what's going on. I think the, the public health community got wind of this pretty late. And um, even I, I work in children's environmental health as a funder, and I alerted Environmental Working Group. They're involved sort of, again, the state Senate passed it. Last chance to kill this bill is to... Um, vote coming up in the um, assembly either today or sometime probably by Wednesday. And then if it passes, it could be vetoed by the governor. But it's just awful for a zillion reasons. 300 cities are opposed. Um, the bulk of counties are opposed. California League of Small Cities is opposed. Um, Environmental Working Group, Sierra Club, League of California Conservation Voters, uh, Center for Environmental Health, it it just it's not prudent. The twenty five million dollar NTP study was was pre released some of the um, results in the spring because they showed a rise in two kinds of cancers in uh, male rats due to non thermal non ionizing full body radiation. The little rats were in containers for just with an hour a day of of exposure. And so why would we? What kind of cancer was it producing? Was it leukemia? Um, there, two, there was a rise in two kind of tumors, brain tumor and a heart tumor. And those are huh. the same kind of tumors that are on the rise in the general population. And this is the gold standard for studies, $25 million longitudinal study, the federal study. And the final results won't even be released until this coming spring. And those show the DNA results. So why would we blanket the whole population of California with this if we haven't, as new information is coming to light, potentially new information showing um, that there are non-thermal. Well, I can, I can answer the why, Lendry. And right. the why is that they're running out of frequency spectrum uh, uh, to, to use for, for cell phones. And they're having to go to much, much higher frequencies than they've used previously. And at those high frequencies, you don't have the ability to penetrate walls like you do with the... the relatively lower frequencies that are used right now for 3G and LTE. And, and so you have to have more antennas. Um, I believe you can, if you're doing more antennas, you can do lower power, which was supposed to be the selling point for this. But I don't disagree with you that we really should be, um, this should be science-based, not just the economics of the cell phone industry. Right. There have been no health and safety studies. We know the FCC doesn't regulate this. Um, it's just scary, and the vote is, is happening this week, so I hope people in California can call your state assemblyman and ask them to vote no on this bill, join the AARP, the California League of Small Cities. At least um, maybe there is a solution, but this... this Has any other state done this? Say it again? Has any other state done this? Um, Ohio tried, and it's, it's still in the courts. I see. Huh. But the move is to, to push it fast and furious before the science comes out. That's yeah. my understanding, you know, because... There's a lot of money involved. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I guarantee you that. I know that for a fact. 
Landry, thanks for the heads up on that. I'll, I'll let me dig into it and, and uh, maybe I can do a riff on it someday this week. Thank you. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And on the line with us is Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, the chief stamper with the Stamp Stampede, stampstampede.org and Stamp Stampede at Stamp Stampede or at Yo Ben Cohen. Hey, Ben. What's happening, Tom, baby? Hey, it's great to see you again. So what's the latest with the Stamp Stampede? Uh, The latest with the Stamp Stampede is that big pharma bribes, drug prices rise, Stamp money out of politics, and there you have it. Uh-huh. Do you see it? Big pharma bribes, drug prices rise. Yeah, brilliant, Ben. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we're working with Free Speech TV. They're focused on getting drug prices to to a reasonable level instead of being the outrageously ridiculous things they are. And the way we're going to do that is by stamping money out of politics. And you know what can I say? I'm psyched because I'm stamping my you know, head off, balls off, ears off, <laughs> stepping everything off. Okay. So if people, for people who haven't seen these, these uh, you know, clips of you and I doing this before, um, uh, can you just really give a, a real quick summary of exactly what it is you're doing, what these stamps are, where they come from, and how people can get them? Well, there's now over 75,000 people that have joined the Stampede and gotten rubber stamps that are designed to be stamped on paper currency. Which is not illegal, by the way. Not illegal, slightly subversive, but totally legal. And it's incredibly effective. It's a protest. It's a demonstration against big money in politics. And every bill that you stamp gets seen by... 875 people once you put it into circulation by spending it to buy whatever you want to buy. Wow. Uh, And it's amazing. I mean, more and more people are finding these things all around the place. And, you know, money in politics is kind of the gateway drug of uh, the corruption of our political process. And in order to get anything that we want, in order to get decent health care, in order to get reasonable drug prices, in order to get decent education, in order to get uh, a banking system that's not uh, exploiting all of us. The first thing we got to do is get money out of politics. Yeah, um, I agree. That's it's the original the, sin. Yeah, that's the thing that they all have in common. And, uh, you know, I mean, demonstrations in terms of showing up in person, uh, particularly showing up in person to your congressperson's office. I mean, those are incredibly important and effective. But the beauty of stamping money is that you can do it anywhere, anytime, and it's lasting. Uh, you know, the average stamp dollar stays in circulation for two and a half years. Wow. And it's cumulative. It builds up along with those people that started stamping three, four years ago. Right. So, uh it's uh, it's one of those disruptive uh, ways of making your voice heard. That is great. That is great. And so if somebody wants to get a, a self-inking rubber stamp that they can just sit there and bang, bang, bang all, all the money in their pocket, there you go. If somebody wants to get one, how do they do it? They go to stampstampede.org and uh, just click on uh, get a stamp. And cool. We'll send you one stampstampede.org. Very, very straightforward. And what stamps do you have now? 
Uh, we've got stamp big money out of politics. We've got not to be used for bribing politicians. And the big one that we're doing now in our promotion with Free Speech TV is big pharma bribes, drug prices rise. Right. And I should add that with every level of donation of Free Speech TV this week, you get one of these stamps. So this is this is a really cool thing. Um, ben, I, I was reading a story on the air a little earlier about 22 Republican senators who wrote a letter to Donald Trump when he was thinking about uh, not pulling out of the Paris Accords. His daughter was leaning on him fairly heavily. Uh, Al Gore met with him. Leo DiCaprio met with him. He was apparently actually considering staying in the Paris Accords. These 22 Republican senators wrote him a letter saying, do it, do it now, damn it, do it. And it turns out that those 22 senators got 10 mil over $10 million in known visible contributions and apparently the industry spent over $90 million, 15 to 1 Republicans to Democrats, um, buying other members of Congress, possibly these same guys. None of those people took a dollar bill. They all, they all got, you know, digital zeros. How do we, how do we echo this from, from the average person who gets a dollar bill to somebody like, you know, uh, uh, you know a Republican senator who doesn't even carry money in his pocket because he's got a man who does that for him? Well, uh, the big thing, I mean, any major change that's happened in our society, uh, getting women the right to vote, uh, passing the Voting Rights Act, uh, gay rights, any of those major things have been the result of grassroots efforts by the people making visual demands of uh, Congress. And uh, that's, that's what we've got to do. And that's what the stampede is. Uh, you know, it, you, you don't need to actually have the congressperson get one of these dollars. You just have to have the whole society making their voice heard and protesting. And that's what causes Congress to act. Yeah. And so your hope is and uh, I'm wondering, your hope is that people will see these dollar bills and will be inspired to become activists. Do you have any evidence that it's working? Well, you know, we've got people that are reporting finding stamp bills uh, increasingly uh, around the country. Uh, you know, we have a, a map of stamp bills on our website uh, and it's just all, you know, it's totally filled up with uh, with red dots. Uh, and we know that since this campaign began and, you know, you should understand that, you know, the stampede is one part of this movement. There's there's many, many organizations that are that are working to get money out of politics. But since this movement has began, uh, there's over nine, there's 19 states now that have voted in favor of a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics. Uh, yeah. Many states have passed state based legislation to uh, support small donor financing. And yeah, it's it's great stuff. Ben, we're out of time, but thanks so much for being with us. Ben Cohen. All right. Stampstampede.org. Get your stamp now. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Interesting piece in today's uh, New York Post. Oddly enough, you know, the New York Post is owned by Rupert Murdoch. And Murdoch's Fox News was 7% owned by a Saudi prince. Although, I, uh, in fact, I, I believe it was uh, Prince Bandar, you know, the, 
good buddies with the Bush family? No, no, it was Talwal. Yeah. Talalawa. Yeah, okay. It was the other guy. Yeah, you're right. Thank you, Troy. Um, but uh, today is 9-11. And I would like to have a conversation with you about what happened on 9-11, what we should have done, and what we did do, and what we should be thinking about doing for any kind of future large-scale terrorist attack. What do we do the next time our country is hit? And, you know, I say that not with absolute assurance that our country will be hit again, but we have made so many enemies around the world in the last 16 years. We have behaved so badly. We have illegally tortured people. We have illegally kidnapped people. We have illegally killed people, both in Guantanamo Bay and on the ground, whether it's a wedding party with a drone strike or whether it's, you know, somebody being tortured to death down in, down in, uh, in, uh, in Gitmo. That, and, you know, and, and we've, you know, we've started wars in, in, in Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Arguably, you know, we, we uh, rhetorically supported a, a political overthrow in Egypt that has led to a highly repressive right-wing, you know, strongman government. We've supported the hard, hardcore right-wing strongman government in Turkey, Erdogan, LCC in, in Egypt. Uh, we've screwed up a lot since 9-11. We have screwed up a lot of the world, and not for any specific interest. It's not like, you know... There were essential minerals at stake or, or more importantly, frankly, essential principles at stake. In fact, if anything, we completely violated our own principles. So this piece by Paul Sperry I find particularly interesting in uh, today's New York Post. He writes, fresh evidence submitted in a major 9-11 lawsuit moving forward against the Saudi Arabian government reveals its embassy in Washington may have funded a dry run for the hijacking. But this is for 9-11. So according to this evidence that was submitted in this lawsuit, there's a bunch of 9-11 survivors, survivors of 9-11, who are suing the Saudi government. And the Saudi government keeps saying, no, you can't sue us, we're a sovereign government. And the U.S. courts keep saying, yes, they can. And what they have found as a result of this uh, discovery was that there were two Saudi nationals, two, two young men living in the United States. Uh, their names were Kudahin and Shalawi. These are their last names. They... They were in Washington, D.C. for a symposium hosted by the Saudi embassy in collaboration with the Institute for Islamic and Arabic Sciences in America. The symposium was chaired by the Saudi ambassador. The Islamic and Arabic Sciences in America, IIASA, uh, used to have as one of their lecturers a guy by the name of Anwar al-Awlaki. Remember him? He ministered to some of the hijackers and helped them obtain housing and IDs. He's the guy that ultimately, I think uh, Obama killed him with a drone strike. The FBI also confirmed that Kudahin's and Shalawi's airline tickets for the pre-9-11 dry run were paid for by the Saudi embassy. Now, what happened in this dry run? This is where it gets real 
interesting. This is, um, this is a quote. This is uh, Kristen Breitweiser writing about this. The dry run reveals more of the fingerprints of the Saudi government. Quote, this is, this is from an FBI case file summary. Okay, this is not an opinion piece. It's not an op-ed. It's not, you know, a rant by somebody. This is from the FBI. Quote, after they boarded the plane in Phoenix, they began asking the flight attendants technical questions about the flight that the flight attendants found suspicious. When the plane was in flight, al Kudahin asked where the bathroom was. One of the flight attendants pointed him to the black back of the plane. Nevertheless, al Kudahin went to the front of the plane and attempted on two occasions to enter the cockpit. The net of this was the flight attendants and the pilots were so, so spooked by these two Saudis who kept repeatedly trying to get into the cockpit of this uh, America West plane. This was in November of 1999, the height of the planning for 9-11. They were so spooked by this that they made an emergency landing in Ohio. The police arrested these two guys, Kudahin and Shalawi. The FBI questioned them, but all they could find to charge them with was trying to get into the cockpit without permission. So they let them go. Turns out these two guys trained at Al-Qaeda camps in Afghanistan with bin Laden at the same time some of the other hijackers on 9-11 were in those camps. And while living in, in uh, Arizona, they had regular contact with a Saudi, Saudi hijacker pilot and senior al-Qaeda leader from Saudi Arabia, who is now incarcerated at Gitmo. The new court filing says, this is from the, uh, from the uh, filing in court where they're, you know, these families are saying, Saudi Arabia funded 9-11, we want them to compensate us. Quote, a pattern of both financial and operational support, end quote, for the 9-11 conspiracy from official Saudi sources, according to lawyers for the plaintiffs. In fact, writes Paul Sperry for today's uh, New York Post, in fact, the Saudi government may have been involved in underwriting the attacks in the earliest stages, including testing cockpit security, something I just shared with you. So this, today's New York Post, this is pretty shocking stuff. So that happened, right? And this was, you know, bin Laden's thing. The reason bin Laden wanted to attack the United States was twofold. One, he felt that we were buying the oil from Saudi Arabia too cheaply. That the, the holy nation, the, 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 the keepers of Mecca and Medina, the holy land of Saudi Arabia, according to bin Laden, was being exploited by the United States for cheap oil. So he wanted them to raise the price of their oil to at least $50 a barrel, which has happened. And secondly, when George Bush, the elder, decided that in order to get reelected, he needed to have a small war someplace. And so, you know, April Gillespie said to Saddam Hussein, you know, if you want to take Kuwait, they're slant drilling into your oil wells. They're ripping you off. If you want to, you want to take them back. They used to be a province of Iraq. You can make them a province of Iraq. I mean, she didn't say those words, but basically she said, the United States doesn't care what you're doing over there. And so, uh, so Saddam Hussein said, cool, I'll take Iraq. And George Bush Sr. was president then, and he wanted to have a little war, just like Reagan did with Grenada to get himself reelected. It's like Maggie Thatcher with the Falklands. 
You know, every, you know, Jimmy Carter didn't have a little war and he didn't get reelected. Every president since then has had a little war and it's helped them get reelected. And so, you know, Bush senior said, I'm going to have a little war with, uh, with Kuwait and Iraq, but we need an air force base in Saudi Arabia to stage the planes for this little war. So they built the uh, Bin Sultan, I think it was, uh, Air Force Base in Saudi Arabia. And this was the second thing that so insanely pissed off uh, Osama bin Laden that in the holy land of Saudi Arabia, in his holy land, there were men drinking alcohol and watching pornography and women driving cars and showing their elbows. These were his two complaints against the United States. Now, after the 9-11 attack, George W. Bush Jr. shut down our Air Force base in Saudi Arabia. He gave bin Laden what he wanted after he let him get away at Tora Bora. And, of course, the price of oil went up. So bin Laden got what he wanted. But what did we want? We wanted a world that, you know, that, that is safe and secure. We wanted a world that works for everyone. And we had this moment after 9-11 when all over the world, people were saying, just like after Charlie Hebdo, you know, Jesuit Charlie, it was I, you know, Jesuit America. I am an American too. All over, the, there, there was a candlelight vigil in downtown Tehran, Iran, the night of 9-11. There were no Muslims dancing and celebrating as Donald Trump asserted there were in New Jersey. It's a lie. It's been outed as a lie. Instead, all around the world, Muslims were saying, this isn't us. These guys don't represent us. We got no beef with you. This is not us. But George W. Bush turned it into an us versus them. And instead of pulling the world together as he had the, the moment to do, instead, he followed those hard right Republican authoritarian instincts of every reaction to anything has to be violent. We're not going to pull people together. We're not going to make a world that works. We're not going to strengthen the United Nations. We're not going to declare these guys international criminals and have all the police agencies of the world look after them. When Mullah Omar, who was running Afghanistan at the time as the head of the Taliban, offered to arrest bin Laden and turn him over to a third country for prosecution, George W. Bush said, no, we'd rather bomb the crap out of your country, which is what he did. Bush completely blew it, as did the neocons in both parties, frankly. I mean, only Barbara Lee voted against the, the, the resolution to go into Afghanistan in the House. I mean, Bush completely blew this thing, as did the neocons. And they had been pushing for it like hell. I mean, the, the project for a new American century, we need to attack Iraq. Right? This was in 1996 or seven, as I recall. And Jeb Bush signed that and Don Remsfeld signed that. And, and uh, you know, it's just it was it was Paul Wolfowitz. It was a rogues gallery of right-wing wackadoodles. And the world is less safe, and we are less safe as a result of Bush and the authoritarians' response to that. Not only are we less safe, we have lost many of our freedoms and many of our liberties, not as a result of the 9-11 attack, but as the result of the way that Republicans and neoconservative Democrats reacted to it. And it's time for us to own up to that, to acknowledge that, to say, you know, we really blew this big time and we need to fix it.
Fantasy football fans, the wait is nearly over. Football is back, which means FanDuel is back. FanDuel is fantasy football for everyday fans. They have new contests starting every week, so there's no busted seasons. FanDuel has something for everyone. Lots of contests to choose from, starting at just $1. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score in real time. Hey, would you like to have Colin Kaepernick on your team? He's on mine. There's a lot of ways to put together and personalize your team, and boy, the games just get better and better. Over 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Sign up today. Go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with over $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. That's FanDuel, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com, promo code TOM. Void where prohibited. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. There's still a lot in the news that I wanted to get to, but the uh, there's this remarkable poem by Emmanuel Ortiz from 9-11-2002. And uh, tip of the hat to Nate, one of our producers here, our video guy who printed this out for me, about 9-11. And, you know, it starts out, I'd... Before I start this poem, I'd like to ask you to join me in a moment of silence in order of those who died in the World Trade Center in the Pentagon last September 11. But then it gets interesting. He said, but I would also like to ask you to offer up a moment of silence for all of those who have been harassed, imprisoned, disappeared, tortured, raped, or killed in retaliation for those strikes. For the victims in both Afghanistan and the U.S. And if I could add just one more thing, a full day of silence for the tens of thousands of Palestinians who've died at the hands of U.S.-backed Israeli forces over decades of occupation. Six months of silence for the million and a half Iraqi people, mostly children, who have died of malnourishment or starvation as a result of an 11-year U.S. embargo against their country. Before I begin this poem, two months of silence for the blacks under apartheid in South Africa, where Homeland Security made them aliens in their own country. Nine months of silence for the dead in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where death rained down and peeled back every layer of concrete, steel, earth, and skin, and the survivors went on as if alive. A year of silence for the millions of dead in Vietnam, a people, not a war, for those who know a thing or two about the scent of burning fuel, their relatives' bones buried in it, their babies born of it. A year of silence for the dead in Cambodia and Laos, victims of a secret war. Shh. Say nothing. We don't want them to learn they're dead. Two months of silence for the decades of dead in Colombia, whose names, like the corpses they once represented, have piled up and slipped off our tongue. Before I begin this poem, an hour of silence for El Salvador, an afternoon of silence for Nicaragua, two days of silence for Guatemala, none of whom ever knew a moment of peace in their living years. 45 seconds of silence for the 45 dead at Octel Chiapas, 25 years of silence for the 100 million Africans who found their graves far deeper in the ocean than any building could poke into the sky. There will be no DNA testing or dental records to identify their remains. 
And for those who are strung and swung from the heights of sycamore trees in the south, the north, the east, and the west, a hundred years of silence. For the hundreds of millions of indigenous people from this half of right here, whose land and lives were stolen in postcard-perfect places like Pine Ridge, Wounded Knee, Sand Creek, Fallen Timbers, or Trail of Tears. Names now reduced to innocuous magnetic poetry on the refrigerator of our consciousness. So you want a moment of silence? We are all left speechless. Our tongues snatched from our mouths, our eyes stapled shut. A moment of silence, and the poets have all been laid to rest, the drums disintegrating into dust. Before I begin this poem, you want a moment of silence? You mourn now as if the world will never be the same. And the rest of us hope to hell it won't be. Not like it always has been. Because this is not a 9-11 poem. This is a 9-10 poem. It's a 9-9 poem. It's a 9-8 poem, a 9-7 poem. This is a 1492 poem. This is a poem about what causes poems like this to be written. And if this is a 9-11 poem, then this is the September 11th poem for Chile, 1971. This is the September 12th poem for Steve Biko in South Africa, 1977. This is the September 13th poem for the Brothers at Attica Prison, New York, 1971. This is the September 14th poem for Somalia, 1992. This is a poem for every day that falls to the ground in ashes. This is a poem for the 110 stories that were never told. The 110 stories that history chose not to write in textbooks. The 110 stories that CNN, BBC, The New York Times, and Newsweek ignored. This is a po poem for interrupting this program. And still you want a moment of silence for your dead? We could give you lifetimes of empty, the unmarked graves, the lost languages, the uprooted trees and histories, the dead stares on the faces of nameless children. Before I start this poem, we could be silent forever or just long enough to hunger for the dust to bury us. And you would still ask us for more silence. If you want a moment of silence, then stop the oil pumps. Turn off the engines and television. Sink the cruise ships. Crash the stock markets. Unplug the marquee lights. Delete the instant messages. Derail the trains, the light rail transit. If you want a moment of silence, put a brick through a window of a Taco Bell to pay the workers for wages lost. Tear down the liquor stores, the townhouses, the white houses, the jailhouses, the pet houses, and the playboys. If you want a, mo a moment of silence, and take it on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, the 4th of July, during Dayton's 13-hour sale, or the next time your white guilt fills the room where my beautiful people have gathered. You want a moment of silence? Then take it now, before this poem begins. Here, in the echo of my voice, in the pause between goose steps of the second hand, in the space between bodies and embrace, here is your silence. Take it, but take it all, don't cut in line. Let your silence begin at the beginning of crime. But we, tonight, we will keep singing for our dead. Brilliant, moment of silence before I start this poem by Emmanuel Ortiz, 9-11-2002. Thank you for that, Nate. Okay, Steve Bannon was interviewed on 60 Minutes last night. I did not see it. 
But uh, there's a fascinating piece about this over at MediaMatters.org, pointing out that uh, Charlie Rose interviewed Steve Bannon, and Steve Bannon wouldn't be Steve Bannon without Robert and Rebecca Mercer. They put the money into Breitbart to turn it into what it is. Uh, their company, Cambridge Analytica, did the data analysis that was so important for the Trump campaign to be able to successfully use Facebook to uh, you know, exploit people's fears, desires, likes, whatnot, uh, to uh, you know, promote the Trump candidacy and to trash Hillary Clinton. Without the Mercers, there would, you know, there'd be no Bannon, there'd be no Breitbart, and there wouldn't be a President Trump. And so you would think that, you know, that would be like the most important thing, right? I mean, the Mercers are part owners of Breitbart. Their foundation serves as the primary funder of the Government Accountability Institute, which is a conservative research group where Bannon previously served as chairman. Bannon co-founded a company called Glittering Steel, which the Mercers own. So why didn't Charlie Rose ask even one word about the Mercers? I was asking the same thing yesterday. Uh, uh, I think it was Chuck Todd. Maybe it was Jake Tapper, I forget, was interviewing John McCain on TV. And uh, he said, you know, you acknowledge climate change. Why won't your Republican colleagues? I'm paraphrasing from memory here. This isn't word for word, but close to it. He said, you know, you acknowledge climate change. Why won't your, why won't your Republican colleagues? And John McCain said, I honestly don't know which was a complete bald-faced lie. And then he went on to talk about, you know, you know, in Arizona, we've got all kinds of sunlight. We don't, you know, we should be moving to renewables. Duh. But the reason the Republicans are unwilling to acknowledge climate change, which I thought was particularly interesting because the next guest, as I recall, was, was uh, I think, Scott Pruitt. It was one of these guys from the administration who's a climate change denier. And he never asked him, why do you deny climate change? Why do Republicans deny climate change? The simple reason is they're taking money from the fossil fuel industry. And I'm not talking, you know, paycheck money. I'm talking hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, perhaps. Certainly over, you know, a decadal periods of time, billions of dollars. Are going from the profits of oil, gas, and natural, and, and natural gas and coal to the pockets Republican politicians and a couple of Democrats, but it's 15 to one in favor of Republicans. So we have that. And then you have Fox so-called news. Julia Conley, staff writer over Common Dreams, wrote this absolutely brilliant people piece about the, the people at Fox News and what's going on there. And it's a summary of research that was done by two universities, two world-class universities, Emory University down in, in Atlanta and Stanford University. And what they found was literally watching only three minutes of Fox News coverage a week would make Democratic and centrist voters 1% more likely to vote Republican in the 2008 election. That Fox News, every other network puts on the air what they think is going to make them the most money. That's what they do. Fox News doesn't do that. Fox News puts on the air what is going to promote right-wing values what's going to promote the things that are of interest to the billionaire class. Keep the, keep the working class fighting with each other. 
Keep them hating each other over whether or not to have unions. Keep them hating each other over whether they should hate the gay members of their family. Keep them hating each other over the people of color who work, you know, who work with, with the white people. Keep, the, keep them all at each other's throats. Why? Because it serves the interests of billionaires to do so. The research, this is from this article. First of all, they say that if it wasn't for Fox News, if Fox News didn't exist, George Bush would never have won. Never have won. Well, he didn't win anyway. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court stopped the vote count in Florida and gave him the presidency. But they also say the research shows that Fox appears to be driven by its ability to shift its viewership to the right, even more than it's guided by its bottom line. According to Vox, the study finds that Fox isn't setting its ideology where it ought to be to maximize its viewership. It's much more conservative than is optimal from that perspective, but it's pretty close to the slant that would maximize its persuasive power that would result in the largest rightward movement among viewers. CNN, by contrast, showed less, less interest in operating as a political agent. Same with MSNBC. They just present the news. With an attitude, but they present the news. Fox, the, you know, Fox News Channel, they write, is consistently more effective at converting viewers than is MSNBC, which has correspondingly estimated persuasion rates of just 16%, 0%, 8 In other words, Fox News is a propaganda channel. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.